If you follow me on Twitter at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? We will take it easy on the memes. It's Thursday, October 22nd, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It is the fourth and final day of our Calling It series. And I knew that you'd be madder than a rained on rooster if we did the whole thing without hearing from Dan Rather. So we shall. But first, I'd like to present to you this, the beginning of the end of calling it. Yes, we're calling it for calling it. And this is usually the part that goes in the last chapter of the nonfiction book, after the author has laid out his or her case and thrown all the research there is towards proving their thesis. They're still required by the norms of publishing to include the optimistic chapter, the prescription. I guess most book buyers are human or specifically the subset of human called Americans and they need some uplift at the end. So what is my prescription? Everyone that we've talked to has said the big prescription is voting for Joe Biden in overwhelming undeniable numbers, right? The problem we've been talking about, the fake impression of a Trump victory that he or his minions can spin into something that it's not after election day. Yeah, that is true. If all the states that vote come in with votes that say Joe Biden has won by every conceivable metric, there won't be much room for Trump to engage in chicanery. But the thing about voting for Joe Biden in overwhelmingly undeniable numbers is that one person can't really do that. Unless you'd go back in time, 18 years, had a whole bunch of children, and then decided to move to a swing state, it's going to be hard. So the more specific question about what to do about the possibility of a red mirage or the media misreporting non-facts, it's less electoral and more attitudinal and informational. What could we as news consumers do in a way that has an effect on what the news reports and how the news contextualizes the election? Well, I have an idea. My prescription is that Americans expand their definition of civic obligation beyond just voting. And they should include in that definition the instruction and information dissemination to friends, to family, to those in your circle who might need to practice better media hygiene during election night or election week. This includes sternly warning your so-inclined relatives away from questionable Twitter sources. Demand that they not forward emails or Facebook posts that are unsourced and inaccurate. I think you should talk to family members about what could happen in terms of the red mirage, in terms of sowing doubt, so that if the red mirage does occur, impressionable people won't take it as a sign or evidence of a coup. Familiarize everyone with this possibility. It will make it seem less shocking and less true. A good way to diffuse conspiracies is to accurately predict beforehand what will happen because it's usually into the maw of lack of information that we rush with explanations, including convenient ones, including ones provided by motivated parties. It is the anxiety of not knowing that leads to, sometimes, conspiracy theories. So for instance, let's take an eclipse. If scientists can predict that the moon shall move past the sun, explain what's going on, and say it will be blotted out for some time, then people 
might say, oh, that's what the scientists call an eclipse. We won't take it to be the sign of an angry God or the end days. Same with election night. Election night or nights or week, it's no longer a TV show. It's a stress test. It is one we can pass, but not by relying on someone else to do the work. So I'll be back in the spiel to talk about comparing 2016 to 2020. I mean, some comparisons are apt. LeBron did win a championship in each year, but I think we may have been backing the wrong side in the whole Kanye West versus Taylor Swift thing. But politics, 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 that's what we're talking about, and that's what we mean. But first, forget 2016, the year 2000. It was a long time ago, but in a lot of ways not. Here is a snippet of the CBS election night coverage of the 2000 presidential race. I'm sitting here thinking of all the conspiracy theorists out there, the people who get on the internet. Can you just imagine what they're going to be saying first about the media, what they're going to be saying about the Bush brothers? This is really going to cause a lot of turmoil. And I think that the, that the networks are going to be hit over the head tomorrow morning. Well, in Canada, we, we deserve it to yep. no small degree. I think you're right. uh, I'm always reminded of those West Texas saloons where they had a sign that says, please don't shoot the piano player. He's doing the best he can. Uh, and this has been pretty much the case here tonight with this election. We do the best we can on these calls, uh, but we have to stand up and take uh, responsibility and be accountable. And that last voice you heard, Dan Rather, will be on to Tickle the Ivories up next. The legendary NBC News producer Reuven Frank once described election night as a TV show about adding. Now, if that doesn't seem exciting enough, consider this. Election night 2020 will be a TV show about waiting to add. A man who knows a lot about election nights is Dan Rather, anchor and managing editor of CBS Evening News for 24 years. He covered a lot of elections in that time. Let's look forward and look back with Dan Rather. Thanks for joining me, Dan. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. So first, I want to talk about election night 2000. And I read a report. I recently went back and read a report that CBS internally put together. And it said it would be easy to dismiss the bizarre events of election night 2000 as an aberration, as something that will never happen again, and to continue covering elections as we always have. But this election exposed flaws in the American voting system, imperfections mirrored in television's coverage of the election results. That, it seems to me, is perhaps a warning for what might be election night 2020. I agree with that. And I think we should... uh pay attention to the very bright blinking yellow lights. There are a lot of cautionary lights, not yet red blinking lights, and get ready for a whole different kind of what I will call voting day. We're accustomed to calling the first Tuesday in November election day, indicating it's going to be the end of the election thing. We'll know a a winner within, you know, eight, 10, maybe 24 hours. It's important to keep in mind this time, it's the climax of the voting period But it may be a long time before we actually know who won the election in the Electoral College. And that's one reason, of course, you and I are having this discussion. One is to try to prepare public opinion that this is going to be a different kind of what I call voting night. And everybody's going to have to have their patience uh, very much with them. If it's an overwhelming, absolutely tsunami kind of victory, uh, that our worst fears may not be recognized. 
but anything less than that, given the realities of how votes are, are cast and how they're counted these days, uh, we have to be ready to be very patient, not have a, a known victor for many hours, perhaps many days, and could be even weeks, given the realities of how the voting patterns have changed and how many votes are expected to be cast. So patience is the watchword, but can network news be truly patient given all the exigencies that the phrase network news brings along with it, the monetary exigencies? Well, that, of course, for anybody who understands how television news works, how it really works, as opposed to how some people from the outside think it works, is uh, the proverbial $64 question that I have no doubt that in all of the networks, and that would include Fox, which I personally, as a matter of personal opinion, considers kind of a propaganda network for the government, but set that aside for the moment, even including Fox, I think every everybody at every network will start out with the very best of intentions. Uh, that in, including the people at Fox who do their calls for elections, these network people are very experienced people. They care about their country. They care about the integrity of the journalism that they put forward on the air. Everybody will start uh, with good intentions. This has been the case of every election night, and I've been involved in presidential election nights, if you can believe it, since 1952, at the network level since 1962. Everybody will start out with the best of intentions, but it is a very competitive world. And the, the undertow to be first, to call races first, is very heavy and it will grow as the evening goes along. The best I can say about this is I do find in talking to people, and I still have some contacts inside networks, including CBS, that by and large, the people who will be responsible for deciding what a network does on election night seem to be taking this election night in a different spirit. They seem to be taking it seriously. So perhaps that pull to be first can be set aside in, in, in many cases, perhaps in all cases. But if you're a news consumer, what you have to say to yourself uh, would, is this is not your average, what used to be called election night. As I say, the first Tuesday in November will be vote day. It may take a long time to get a count. Don't believe necessarily the first things you hear. You know, one of the things that cub reporters used to be taught is be careful about the first thing you hear because too often the first things you hear turn out to be wrong. Of course, this was the case in the, the famous, infamous, or notorious, depending on the word you choose, 2000 election. But you have to be very careful about the first things that come across because they can be misleading. An example of that would be, just to put it in some context for you, uh, that there is a lot of talk, as the Wall Street Journal and others have pointed out, of the possibility of a so-called, quote, red mirage, mm -hmm. which is to say that the first returns that come in are going to create the impression that, wow, the, the red team, which is to say the Republican Party and Donald Trump, are off an overwhelming start and will create a sort of mirage, if you will, that, boy, everything on the map is looking red, if you will, when the reality is that by far the, the largest number of votes haven't even been counted and won't be counted for a long while. And you could have a situation where in the early hours, maybe a number of hours, that you have what looks like a victory for Trump and the Republican Party, when in fact it will be an overwhelming victory for Joe Biden. That possibility exists, and that's the reason there's this talk of a possible red mirage. 
And I think the most we can do is try to, again, educate used consumers. Well, that's one possibility. There are a lot of other possibilities. But I just let wind up this by saying that, you know, in the West Texas cow towns, there used to be these scientists say, please don't shoot the piano player. He's doing the best he can. And I would hope that people would adopt that for the network people who are dealing with the election, that they're decent people. They want to do a good job. And so we shouldn't be too hard on them voting day if they foul up a time or two or create a false impression. Yeah. But I want to go back and quote from the same report I did at the beginning of this interview. It was a CBS News coverage of election night 2000 investigation, analysis, and recommendation. And they noted, as you were saying, competitive pressure. They write... This is in 2000. Competitive pressure, make no mistake, the election night broadcast occurs in a cauldron of competitive heat, heat that comes from within each individual and within each network, all burning to be the best and to be first. Now, from what I know of network news, that cauldron has not declined in intensity, but are you hoping and predicting that for this night, the heat will in fact consciously be turned off beforehand? Because it's a hard thing to do so if you don't make the commitment to do so. Well, exactly. With the major networks, the major networks are owned and operated by very large corporations. In every case, a a worldwide corporation controls. This is true of all the networks. It was in 2000. It is now. And In the control room on election night, what I will call the big owls, big powers of the corporations are frequently in the control room. After all, they own the news divisions. You follow me, the head of NBC, the head of Fox. It's a big night. They're in the control room where decisions are are being made and implemented. And the corporations have interests in who wins and who loses races, particularly presidential races, and what happened in 2000. Nobody much likes to talk about this, that in the control rooms, there were in some control rooms, there were representatives, even leaders of the corporations who owned the news divisions, who were urging to make a call for George Bush because it was in their business best interest, as well as their own personal, political, and ideological interest, to get Bush out front. This happened in two of of the network control rooms. And whether that will exist this time or not, but I'm not telling anybody how to run their business, but if somebody asked me, I would say, it's very important to keep the corporate leaders out of the decision-making corners, especially the control rooms. I hope that hasn't confused you, but it's such an important point if you're gonna understand what happened in 2000, because those pressures existed. And in some cases, they were persuasive. And in the end, I think they did make a difference. Was CBS one of the networks with corporate bosses in the control room? No. But some of the other ones were. That's correct. That's correct. And it's not for me to say so in this broadcast. I'm not trying to be coy with anybody, but you can check the record. But it was not the case at CBS. In the case of CBS, and keep in mind that I was the anchor on election night, and I accept my full amount of responsibility for what happened. But CBS had been the gold standard for calling elections since uh, what I would call a modern election night era began in the late 50s or 60s, that the CBS News operation, which from decade to decade was in the hands of different people, I'm going from memory here, but it called well over 3,000 races, including presidential races, with only, my recollection, only three 
maybe four mistakes in the case of Senate races or House races, an overwhelming record for being correct. And so the confidence of CBS News was extremely high that when we made a call, you could take it to the bank. And so I would say overconfidence and being certain once our operation had decided to make a call that that was the call led to an early mistake. The early mistake was putting Florida uh, in a, a Gore column. And I can remember very well that, you know, before we got into election night, we, we were all reviewed what the leadership of the CBS News division wanted to do. And one of the things was once we have made a call, once CBS News has made a call, then we don't want to be questioning it on the air. And so when Florida was called and as the night developed and in the early stages when it appeared, that, well, Florida was certainly going to be closer uh, than we had first imagined. There was that ringing in our ears. Well, don't question the call because the people making the call have such a, a good record. But the rest, they say, is a history. Now, those who made the call the night will go to their grave. Some of them have already gone to their grave, I'm sorry to say, insisting that the call was right, that what happened is that in, in the counting of the votes and allowing votes that the Republicans were in charge of the state apparatus and the Republicans had the control of the Supreme Court and that they managed to pull the election for George Bush, that the original call being for Gore was correct. But uh, that doesn't get you very far because George W. Bush was sworn in as president. Gore was not. To what extent do you think that calling it first for Gore, then retracting, then Bush, then retracting. Did that have any real effect on the narrative? Do you have any sense that the momentary impression, you know, relatively speaking, momentary impression that one side or another had won, had any real effect on the outcome ultimately? Well, all I got to do is give you my opinion. I think the decisive things having to do the way it finally got settled was, as I say, the fact that Republicans were in control of most of the upper reaches of the state machinery in Florida and that they had a, a majority in the Supreme Court. That's what settled it. These arguments about, well, by making the call early, it actually affected the election. Uh, no, I don't agree with that argument. I can understand why Republicans make the argument and there's some people making the argument still. But here we are in 2020 and what we're trying to do is learn from our mistakes in 2000. And, and move forward and do it better and build all the confidence we can with the news consuming public. And to do that, I do think that the people of the network and some of them are doing a good job now need to get out front and explain, look, this is not going to be your average court election night. It's going to require patience. It may take a long time. Now, there is a possibility, and I do think that we should you know, pause and make sure that people understand it. Uh, having talked about what could happen, among the things that could happen, John, of course, is that the election is overwhelming one in one direction and that we do know pretty quickly how it's going to go. That is also a possibility. In my personal opinion, that's not the likelihood, but it does remain a possibility. So in your years since 1952 of covering elections, I would assume you went into most election nights hoping that there was drama, hoping for races tighter than the lug nuts on a 55 Ford, <laughs> let's say. Would you have to, do your colleagues and brethren have to get out of that mindset for this election? And will it be hard to? Well, you're quite right that I never went into what used to be called election night without that sense of there's a real chance here of high drama 
I always considered it a real honor to be in the anchor chair. I know that sounds corny to some people. I considered it an honor and a real responsibility. But, you know, things move on, times move on. And here we are at the end of the second decade of the 21st century, and everything has changed. And so people have to understand, and particularly the people who have the responsibility of presenting election night returns, vote night returns, that it's not the same game. But I can almost guarantee, while I know some of them, I don't know every anchor person that will be in an anchor chair on a network for this vote night. But it will be impossible for them not to think to themselves, boy, this could really be close. This night could, could be an exciting night. And I need to convey that in, in our coverage. It's natural for them to think that way. And a lot of them, despite what you and I are discussing here, that's ill-advised this time, are bound to do it. It's just the nature of appearing on television. Yeah. You know, we were talking about things for people to have in their mind that we live in a time when truth is often intentionally obscured. So an unexpected delay, particularly a long debate in counting the votes, is bound to fuel any number of false narratives. And whether they're anchor people or have minor roles on the air, I hope, I have confidence, but I certainly hope that the journalists will make it clear that if it takes a long time to get the vote count, that does not, it should not call into question the election's credibility. Indeed, what it ought to do is underscore the election's credibility by taking our time and making sure as, as close as we can come to making every vote count. You mentioned that you consider at times Fox to be a propaganda outlet. I think that's a fair assessment. But then there is the news side of Fox, which, I mean, I was watching your 2000 election coverage there in with the Bush camp was John Roberts reporting for CBS News. He's the White House correspondent for Fox now. As you know, your former colleague, Mike Wallace, his son, Chris Wallace, who has some CBS experience, he's Fox's uh, iconic news figure. Do you have faith in the news side of Fox if they are the ones who are dominating the coverage on election night? I do have confidence in the individual people that you mentioned, both of whom I know well. I do have confidence in general in the news, what is called the news side of Fox, that they want to do the right thing. The question is the ownership of Fox and the leadership of Fox. It all starts at the top. If the Murdochs who own Fox, if they want their integrity-filled news side of Fox and the integrity-filled election projection group of people who are very experienced and want to do the right thing. If the very top of the corporate management encourages integrity and insists on integrity, then I would believe what Fox puts out. But there's no way of knowing whether that's true or not. Right. We should cover the news without fear or favor. It is an old journalism dictum. Adolf Oaks coined it or at least popularized it if it didn't invent it. So what you're describing, and I think what the networks are saying they're going to do, is not to show favoritism, but there is a fair amount of fear in their coverage, fear of misinformation, fear of what happens if a uh, malevolent actor runs with the ambiguity of election night. Is that okay? Does that come at a cost? Or maybe we should just rethink what Adolf Oaks originally expounded upon? What a good question. I think the answer is listen to your conscience. 
most people who got into journalism get in because they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. They want to contribute something, they want to contribute to the country, they want to contribute to the good of men, humankind. And if those in the decision-making corridors of the networks listen to their conscience and report on the basis of conscience, then we'll be okay. It's when pressures like ratings pressure, competitive pressure, the desires of corporate leadership, when those kinds of things begin to eat away at the conscience, that's when mistakes get made. And, you know, you said it quite rightly that it's an old credo in journalism that reports the news without fear or favor. A shorthand version of one of the credos of journalism on election night that I always tried to have in mind, and that is, you trust your mother, but you cut the cards, which <laughs> is a way of saying, yes, you know, these figures seem to add up, but you know what, maybe we take just a, another minute, another five minutes, another hour, another day to make sure we're right. So you trust your mother, but you cut the cards. Dan Rather is co-author of What Unites Us, Reflections on Patriotism, and the host on Access TV of The Big Interview, and the the host of the documentary Human Nature on Netflix, and somehow he is described as a, a retired journalist. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. I appreciate the opportunity. Good luck. Godspeed. And now the spiel. So most of this week, we've been talking about right-wing talking points that aren't just annoying or inaccurate, but potentially destabilizing, especially if they come from the president and are echoed in the media. But you know, the left-wing engages in its share of inaccuracy as well. Granted, not nearly as bad and won't threaten democracy, just doesn't necessarily strengthen it. Michael Moore was on The Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC the other day. I'm sure he was on other shows too, in his own podcast, The Rumble. But Moore remains an extremely unreliable narrator to the degree that if you are media that aspires to present factual information, you shouldn't ignore Michael Moore, but you should challenge him. So Michael Moore, you may remember, got a lot of credit for getting 2016 right. He warned us that Hillary could lose. Of course, in 2012, he warned us that Obama could lose. You know, Mitt Romney is going to is going to raise uh, uh, more money than uh, Barack Obama. That should guarantee his victory. Guess what? This year, he's back to tell us that Biden could lose. Everybody needs to wake up every morning for the next, you know, 12, 13 days with this one thought. Trump is going to win. Trump is going to win. Now, people are listening right now. Mike, don't say that. Don't say that. Yes, I will say it. More hasten to say at the prodding of host Brian Lehrer, because he is a good host, that he doesn't think Biden would lose, but that we should imagine this scenario and cast our minds forward. This is an exact persuasion technique of charlatans and demagogues, but also people who just want to get their point across. It does include priming and visualization. It's not unethical per se, but it's far from rigorous analysis. Here's Moore's version of quantitative analysis. And that's what I, I saw. You just you drove up and down the roads, Trump sign after Trump sign after Trump sign. And um, and you listen to the chatter uh, in the coffee shop or at the gas station or wherever. And um, and I just kept where are the Hillary yard signs, yard signs and diners. If only there was my taxi driver on the way in from the airport, we'd hit the trifecta of flabby political analysis. Then there was this little riff about an outlier of a state poll. Back in July, uh, Joe Biden, actually there was one poll where he was ahead of 
uh, Trump this just in July by about 16 points. The average of the polls now is, is about eight points. Mm-hmm. That means that Trump has cut Biden's lead in half just since July. If you're not paying attention, you can miss the dishonesty of that analysis. It was 16. Now it's eight. So he lost half his lead. No, it's that one poll was twice as inaccurate as all the others. Let's say you get your cholesterol checked and the number comes back LDL level 180. Your doctor says, wow, that is really high. You've never had it that high. That seems a little out of character. Maybe you didn't fast beforehand. Maybe the test was contaminated. Let's get tested again. You get tested again and it comes back 90. Would you say, wow, you cut your cholesterol in half? You would not. But just like your doctor wouldn't say, okay, now go back to not worrying at all about your cholesterol. She'd probably say, you know, it's still good to be mindful and keep it in check. Just like that, that's how all the incentives align for more and anxious Democrats to say, still, we should be mindful. We should do everything we can and we should do everything we can. But one thing we could do is not give much credit to that 16 point poll. Most of the arguments Michael Moore makes just aren't worth much. If you think that his whole shtick amounts to, well, if he just convinces one person to vote for Biden who thought Biden had it in the bag, then I'm glad he's on the air, then you'll give him a lot of latitude. But if you just hold him to the standards of what other pundits should be held to, you know, raising points that are relevant, making arguments that are compelling, having argumentation that holds together, he comes up short. He has this reputation for getting it right or understanding the heartland. And of course, he has these strong credentials among leftists on healthcare and unions. So there's really no force coming forward to say Michael Moore has consistently been non-rigorous, non-serious and offering non-factual arguments. The only reason we keep paying attention is that he's a recognizable brand who already adheres to the worldview of many of us. Now, one major assumption of Moore's thesis is that 2020 is really quite similar to 2016. He did in that interview ask us to remember 2016 over and over again. The segment was titled, Is It 2016 All Over Again? And over on the Dispatch podcast, the conservative commentator Jonah Goldberg made the point that even though Joe Biden is a far different candidate from Hillary Clinton, and even though Donald Trump as an incumbent is far different from Trump as an insurgent, the cognoscenti is still overly mired in a 2016 mindset. Everybody is talking about 2016 as if it is the benchmark prism through which to view this election. And I understand it to a certain extent. I mean, 50% of the candidates from 2016 are running again. Um, 2016 is the most recent election. Uh, Donald Trump is literally trying to run the exact same campaign that he ran in 2016 with only a few variations, um, down to lock them up chants and all of these kinds of things. But, but at the end of the day, I think the differences between 2016 and today are much greater than the similarities. Goldberg is right that 2016 is different from 2020, but it's not a lot different because all of Goldberg's analysis was about the difference between the candidates in 2016 and now, the candidates. And the podcast host, Sarah Isger, cited differences in voter opinions, and she too concluded, There's just not a lot to back up that this is 2016 again. But they're failing to highlight the biggest similarity. It's the electorate. 
the electorate is very similar. In fact, it's about 85% similar. The percent of new voters in 2016 was 15%. It was the highest it ever was. There might be more voters this time than there were in 2016, but that doesn't mean there's going to be more new voters, but there very well could be, but it won't be much more than 15% new voters. The large majority, very large majority of the electorate is the same. In fact, the 2020 electorate is more similar to the 2016 electorate than any other electorate that happened beforehand. And I don't just mean in attitudes or where people live. I mean, they're the exact same people. Now, people sometimes do change their minds, but not often. Still, it is almost entirely the same humans. And the editors of the dispatch, I do have to say, they don't really disagree Because the underlying argument, when you think about it, is that it's a vastly different election, and that will lead to a vastly different outcome. And that vastly different outcome is, in fact, the vast difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. That is a big difference. But the vote itself, the actions and choices of most of the voters will be the same. Trump still has to win in those close states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. The South is pretty much solid red. The Northeast and West Coast are solid blue. Within states, the more urban areas are Democrat, the more rural areas are Republican. Within voters, individual voters, the more educated ones are blue, the less educated ones are red. Men are red, women are blue. How blue? If Biden loses, they'll be pretty damn blue. The electorate is still set to deliver a really close margin with in all likelihood at least 40 out of 50 states voting exactly as they did in 2020. Of course, I could be wrong. Biden could win Texas, Georgia, Alaska. He could flip 11 states if it goes that deep. That would be great. But I would feel a little chastened for making a bad prediction. But then I'd be quite thrilled because Trump was defeated. But then I'd be chastened for laying into Jonah Goldberg for saying that 2016 was nothing like 2020. But then I'd be thrilled for having correctly said that Michael Moore is a broken record and it's safe to toss him out. And that's it for this week's show. And as I said, we're calling it for calling it. Thanks to Daniel Schrader and Margaret Kelly, who produced this series and the gist They trust I will comport myself with dignity as I interview luminaries, but they can't be 100% sure, making them as nervous as bird dogs in a duck blind. Alicia Montgomery, Slate's executive producer of podcasts, presented a solid front during all this, though her insides were shakier than cafeteria jello. The Uber producers of Slate Podcasts are Gabriel Roth and June Thomas. They never doubted my professionalism, and if you believe that, you believe rocks can grow. Katie Rayford is Slate's Director of Media Relations, making her as nervous as pigs in a packing plant about this big burrito. The gist. Tomorrow, we're back to normal debate coverage, though a debate with Donald Trump is about as normal as if Fidel Castro came looping through downtown St. Paul on a hippopotamus. Oompru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.